Thank you for listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit our website, centurybaptist.org, or download the Century Baptist Church app. Reading from Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, says this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loses son or, or loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Pastor Paul and the words that he will bring forth to us. We pray that your spirit will help our heart, mind, and soul uh, be open to what you have for us this morning. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Invite you to uh, keep your place in the Bible there as we work through this this text this morning. And uh, if you didn't if you didn't bring your Bible, if you don't have one with you, I'm going to invite you to grab one from in front of you. The the thicker Bibles uh, turn to page 815. That'll get you right to Matthew chapter 10, or in the thinner uh, Bible in front of you, it's uh, page 765, page 815, or page 765. We're going to continue our study through Jesus' call, commission, and, and coaching of His disciples that He's recorded uh, for us in Matthew chapter 10. Immediately prior to this chapter, Jesus had observed the people as He was ministering about, about them, and He was going through them, and he, see, he saw that they were distressed, they were dispirited, they were, they were harassed, they were helpless. And Jesus felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he says to his disciples at the end of chapter 9, verses 37 to 38, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And so Matthew 10 is the call by Jesus of his 12 disciples to this specific mission to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His disciples are to go to their own people, of their own religion, of their own culture, among their own families. And after Jesus calls them and commissions them, he spends the lion's share of the chapter coaching them and instructing them on what they are to do regarding this mission. Arguably the best coach across all sports, John Wooden won 10 NCAA basketball championships in a 12-year period as the head coach of the UCLA Bruins, including a record seven straight basketball championships. There's no doubt he was a great coach and even better human being. Swin Nader was one of his players. Swin won uh, two uh, NCAA titles at UCLA after transferring from a junior college. And Swin tells the story of the first time that he got to the team 
and was at the team meeting. They only had one team meeting uh, during the course of the basketball season, and it happened to be one week prior to the start of the season. Coach Wooden was there, and as they gathered, Coach Wooden instructed his players to take off their shoes and their socks. And then Coach Wooden said, Now I'm going to show you how to put your socks on correctly. Swin thought, I averaged 26 points and 16 rebounds. I think I know how to put on my socks. But as Swin looks around the room, he sees two All-Americans taking off their shoes and socks, and he sees the other players taking off their shoes and socks, players who had just won a national championship, and so Swin did as well. Coach Wooden then instructed his players on the proper way to put on socks so that there would be no wrinkles in the socks. And this was important because wrinkles cause blisters, and a blister can will change the effectiveness and the productivity of a player. Coach Wooden then went on to teach them how to tie and to untie their shoes. Now, players who subject themselves to the coach's leadership authority and are humble enough to learn and take instruction in the little things to help them become better players, these are players who will discover the realization of their ability in becoming the best that they can be. Not just on the basketball court, but in life, every area of life, as they become better human beings, as they become people of character, which is what was always most important to Coach Wooden. The same is true for believers in Jesus. When we subject ourselves to Jesus' leadership and authority, and we have the humility to be instructed by Jesus Christ and His teaching, it develops our faith. And so as Jesus is coaching His disciples here regarding this mission of preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand and ministering in His name with the authority that He had given them, as Matthew records for us in verse 1, Jesus is pointing out and He's clarifying what they are to take with them as they go on this mission, who they are to look for to be a local ally, where they are to stay, what it will be like for them as they go out among their own people, who they are to be on the lookout for and what they can and may do to them, how they will be treated because they claim the name of Jesus Christ. What to do when persecution comes, because persecution is inevitable for some and most likely all of the disciples. Jesus then tells them, you don't need to fear. In fact, three times He commands them not to fear. Because the people to whom they are going regardless of their power, position, or authority, do not have the ability to destroy their soul. And so then Jesus encourages them with 
the fact that their Heavenly Father knows everything about them. Their Heavenly Father is concerned with every aspect of their lives. So they, Jesus' disciples, in that first century and Jesus' disciples today, we don't need to fear, we don't need to be afraid. And as we come to our text today in verses 32 to 39, we will see that a disciple of Jesus is a worthy worker in the Lord's harvest field. And how a worthy worker prioritizes his speech, his relationships, and his ambitions. Verse 32, Jesus, continuing to instruct his disciples, says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And he starts by saying, therefore, that, that word therefore is such a, a, weighty, a weighty word because it gives us cause to, to stop and say, okay, what have we just learned? What have we just read? What have we just discovered here? And what is the coming result out of that? What's the coming action because of that? This, therefore, leads us to these three priorities that Jesus outlines for his disciples in these next eight verses. The priority of one's speech, the priority of one's relationships, and the priority of one's ambitions. Verses 32 and 33 focus on the priority of one's speech. What a disciple will say or not say as a result of his trust in and obedience to the instruction that Jesus has given them in the previous 27 verses. In this context, because there is no reason to fear persecution from men, for remember, Jesus told them, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but is unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. So the disciples should have no difficulty. They, should, they shouldn't hesitate in following through with whatever Jesus has to say. Now, Jesus says, everyone who confesses me before men, publicly, Jesus will confess that individual before God, his Father. And then as well, Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, whoever denies me publicly, will be denied by Jesus before God, his Father. Everyone who confesses, everyone who acknowledges, everyone who declares allegiance, admits, speak the same. The, the word actually means speak the same. Or everyone who denies a verbal renouncing of knowledge of or a relationship to, a disowning. And so Jesus is pointing out that the stakes of being his disciple, preaching the message that he's called them to preach and commission them for, and to minister in his name with his authority, the stakes for being that person are high. They are great. So much so, Jesus says, that to confess me before men in public is to have me confess you before God. And to deny me in public before men is to have me deny you before God, Jesus says. 
You see, confessing Christ is an open declaration that agrees with all of Jesus' claims for himself. Everything that Jesus has been teaching and everything that Jesus has been doing that we've looked at in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, his teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 8 and 9, as Jesus was ministering in and amongst the people, he says, now as you go forward, do you agree with this? And if you do, you will confess and as well in the agreement is a consent that Jesus has claimed as Lord over your life. In effect, it's a contractual agreement to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. Confessing Christ is closely associated with believing in Jesus unto salvation. This is the profession necessary for sanctification, salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul writes this, says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, justification, salvation. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in in salvation, resulting in sanctification. And our sanctification is we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Our life reflects Jesus in how we live, how we act, what we say, how we think, what our motives are, what the attitudes are that, that we have. The Apostle Paul demonstrated this kind of confession by openly declaring before the Roman governor Felix that he followed Christ in Acts chapter 24, verse 14. The Apostle says this, But this I admit to you, that according to the way, that's a title used for followers of Christ, the way, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. So Jesus says, as we confess, He likewise will confess. He will openly acknowledge before His Father those who have confessed Him. The disciples had responded to Jesus' call. But let's be clear on the disciples' response to follow Jesus. Just because they were following him as a rabbi doesn't make them a Christian or a believer in him. We know that because Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve and he did not believe in Christ. In fact, he betrayed him. So as one who claims to be a Christian, the issue is not of doing all the supposed correct things of attending corporate worship services, of serving in a ministry, of giving a tithe or an offering, of reading the Bible, of being baptized or participating in communion or the Lord's Supper, of having daily devotions, of joining a community life group, of learning the language of Christians, of praying in public or private, and the list can go on. See, none of the things that I just mentioned is what saves us from our sin against a holy God, our Creator. What saves us is deeper 
than outward actions, duty, and words. All of those things are important and have a place in our faith, but they are not the foundation and they are not the basis for our faith, for the believer in Jesus, the disciple of Jesus. The foundation is believing in Jesus Christ as God's one and only Son who came to earth, lived a sinless life, and willingly gave up His life to die on a cross for the sins of mankind, for your sins and mine. He shed His blood because blood was needed to be shed in order to cover sin. All the way back in Genesis 3, we see that God used blood to cover sin. And the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross was the payment to cover God's wrath against sin. So that by God's grace through faith, we might be saved from an eternity apart from God and be saved to an eternity with God. That we might be rescued from hell and saved to heaven. Now Peter, when asked by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16... Who do you say that I am replied this way with this confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter confessed who Jesus was. But later on in life, Peter denied Jesus before men. In fact, he did it three times. The night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, and as he was going about his trials, Peter denied Jesus three times. Hey, I don't know Jesus. Sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I don't know the guy. Nope, never been around him, never followed him. <laughs> Teachings? Uh-uh, not me. Wasn't me. No, sorry, you got the wrong guy. Peter denied Jesus before men, but Jesus didn't deny him. So what's, what's going on here? Well, it's context. We can never, ever read the Bible out of context. For when we do, we can make it say anything we want it to say. So we've got to keep it in context. What's Jesus actually teaching His 12 disciples here? And what Jesus is teaching him them is the meaning of discipleship. He's saying, look, this road of discipleship, as you go out into these harvest fields, as you go out preaching the kingdom, if heaven is at hand, as you go out doing ministry in my name, you're going to encounter people that aren't going to receive you. They're not going to welcome you. They don't want you around. They're going to reject you. In fact, they're going to persecute you. But listen, you can be courageously confident because those people, they can't kill the soul. Oh, they can create a lot of problems. They can harass you. Okay, they can make life difficult for you. They can persecute you. They may be able to even kill you. But they cannot kill your soul. They cannot destroy your soul. You see, only God can do that. And so Jesus is saying, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men publicly, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. It may not be easy, but it's absolutely possible to confess Jesus, to acknowledge and declare our allegiance to Jesus. In fact, it's an integral part of our spiritual growth. It signifies publicly our faith in Jesus as Savior for our sins and Lord over all of our life. And so Jesus is instructing His disciples 
that, look, you're going to face persecution from religious people who talk, look, and act just like you do. They're the Jewish religious leaders. They study and they know Torah. They know the law. And in fact, they're looking for the coming Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Secondly, you're going to suffer at the hands of the government. Third, you're going to suffer at the hands of your own family, some of you. And lastly, you're going you're to suffer persecution from all men, from the culture in which you live and minister on my behalf. And so confessing me is not something that's necessarily going to be easy. It's going to be hard. But he's telling his disciples, if it hasn't been yet, it will be. It's coming. Now, I find the following true in my own life, and as I've observed others, I think it's true in their life as well. And it's this. See, we like baby Jesus, don't we? We like Christmas. We like the cuteness, the harmlessness, the dependence of the baby on his mother and father to help him to grow up to be a, to be a toddler and then to a little boy and then to an older boy and finally into a man. And even as uh, disciples of Jesus, even as those who call themselves evangelicals, even religious people who are okay with the Bible, they can like and, uh, and appreciate and even have a love for Jesus on the cross. Because see, we're, we're fine and we're grateful for someone to do the greatest act of love for us possible, something that, that we can't do for ourselves. What about the Jesus who taught in Luke 17 that it's better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea alongside the if your brother sins against you seven times and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. We can get on board pretty quickly with the Jesus who protects children those who are vulnerable, those who are weak. But the Jesus who wants us to continue to forgive the same person over and over, in fact, seven times in one day, that's asking a lot. Jesus, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with what, you, with what you said there. In fact, <laughs> I kind of got some reasons why uh, I don't think I really need to believe or follow your teaching right about now. And I'd, if you don't mind and you got some time, Jesus, I'd really like to share those with you. Does that ever sound like anything you've ever thought about some of the teachings of Jesus? See, I think we like the Jesus who points out the command, you shall not commit murder. Yeah, we can get on board with that. But as we took a look at the Sermon on the Mount, we struggle with the Jesus who teaches the one who is angry with his brother has committed the same kind of sin as murder. We like when Jesus states, hey, you shall not commit adultery. But wait a minute, when Jesus teaches, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his heart. I think the truth is told that most people, possibly even most disciples of Jesus, we kind of like to pick and choose the parts of, of Jesus that we're willing to follow. Most believers, 
I wonder if they don't want Jesus to be a buffet and not a specific seven-course meal. See, they'd rather go through the buffet line and pick the things that they like that, that don't really cramp their style, that, that are okay with their plans. They don't want to grab those things that, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't fit into what I had my ideas for my life were, Jesus. This is, uh, no, you're, no you're, that's not something that I'm really, uh, really adept at, so I'm not sure that's going to be what I want to do. Jesus is teaching his disciples here. When you follow me, when you go where I lead, when you do what I ask, what I command you to do, because I created you, because I love you, I will protect you, I gave my life for you. Now, they don't know that quite yet. We know that because we're 2,000 years later and we have the rest of Matthew's gospel. But imagine how that hit them after Jesus died on the cross these words. And because I have your eternity secure in heaven with God my Father, you can do this. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to fear. Therefore, confess me before men. And so the logical conclusion of adherence to those commands not to fear in in verses 26, 28, and 31 leads to the confession of knowledge of and a relationship to Jesus. And as Jesus' disciples believe in the instruction he's giving for the task that he's called them to do when they trust that his care and his concern for them will protect them and keep their soul for all of eternity, see, then they can confess Jesus publicly before men, the very men that Jesus tells them in verse 17 to be aware of because they know that those people can't kill the soul. They can only, at worst, kill the body. So the first priority of a disciple is our speech, a willingness to confess Jesus publicly. The second priority is in verses 34 to 36, and it relates to our relationships. Do not think, verse 34, I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be members of his household. Jesus said some pretty tough stuff, didn't he? Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. I came to bring that which divides, that which cuts deep, causes opposition within family. Notice carefully, sometimes it gets lost and it gets lost in and sometimes some of the sayings that we have and, and songs that we sing because we get it, we kind of get Scripture wrong, but look what it says here. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Jesus didn't come to bring peace on earth. That's not why He came. He came to bring peace. That is true, but not on earth. He came to bring peace into our hearts where we needed it most. And He knew that if He was going to do that, There wasn't going to be tranquility on the planet. You see, the war that that rages, sin against God, He came to be the peace, to bring peace, and it was Him, it was found in Him. But as you look out and as you look around, He's telling the disciples, there's going to be a severing of close family relationships. Verses 35 and 36 
which were already alluded to in verse 21, are a paraphrase, quote, of the minor prophet Micah in chapter 7, verse 6. And that there is a prediction of the social disruption to become to come because of the Lord's judgment. In Micah 7, 6, we read, For son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Jesus is telling his disciples that a commitment to him could lead to a very painful chasm between family members. It's not that Jesus set out to disrupt and to destroy families. Rather, it's the Jesus of the Bible is the one who is going to separate all religions from Christianity. You can get all religions together, and for the most part, you can talk about God and everybody's fine. You bring up Jesus, and all of a sudden, there's a little clearing of the throat. People are shifting in their chairs, and their eyes are going down. Because He is the one that is different. You see, He's the one that makes the entire difference between Christianity and every other religion. Because Jesus came as the only Son of God who is the only one able to forgive sin and it came because He died on the cross. He shed His blood for your sin and mine. Jesus alone is where the forgiveness of sin comes from. No one else, nothing else is needed. Your help is not needed. There's nothing you bring to the table. Jesus did it all. And so this sword in verse 34 is this, is this metaphor that people who are going to hold to Jesus Christ and follow Him and serve Him above all else, allowing Him to not only be their Savior but be their Lord, might destroy family relationships and likely will. And there might be some people here this morning. It's done great damage to family relationships. You've chosen to follow Christ. You've chosen to follow the Jesus of Scripture. Not who the world paints Him to be or who the world wants Him to be, but who He says He is in the Word of God. Not who a religion or a church has said Jesus is and what is needed, but who Scripture says Jesus is and what is needed. And see, that's hard because it means a few things. First, it means that each man, woman, and child is born into sin. Secondly, it means that each one of us is separated from God because of that sin. Third, it means each of us has nothing to offer God for our sin problem. See, we can't solve our own sin issue. Fourth, it means that each of us is then completely dependent on someone or something else to pay the debt of our sin to a holy God. And we know that that someone is Jesus. And fifth, then we have to humble ourselves before God, which is something that's very contrary to the war that rages in us, that the enemy brings to us. Because things like pride and arrogance and our own strength and our own work, our, our noble efforts are at stake. And we have to realize that, wait a minute, uh, they don't count for anything. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. 
it's the most amazing truth. That God, through His unconditional love, kindness, mercy, and amazing grace demonstrated in Jesus Christ, His only Son, is that the only way for you and me to be forgiven of our sin and enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ is that we believe in Him by grace through faith. And that's what makes Jesus so polarizing. That's why He's such a lightning rod of divisiveness. Some man who lived 2,000 years ago, he does it all, nothing else. I don't do anything. I must have to do something. No. No, it's Jesus. Get over yourself. And families who have generationally been apart from from Jesus or God at all or or even been in a, a specific religious system, Chasms can be created really, really quickly because someone reads the Word of God and goes, no, man, it's, it's that simple. It's just Jesus. That's it. He does it for us because He loves us. And so as a result, He's the one that I'm going to, to passionately pursue and follow, and the relationship I have with Him supersedes all other relationships. The second priority of a disciple is one's relationships, that there is no one before Jesus. Verses 37 to 39, we find the third priority, and this one relates to our ambitions. To exhibit allegiance to Jesus by following Him and living according to His teachings, when it costs family relationships, is a practical way to demonstrate what it means to confess Jesus before men. Verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. A disciple prioritizes his or her ambitions in submission to Jesus' mission, to Jesus' call, and to Jesus' plan for their life. Our commitment to Christ is to supersede all other commitments. Our interests, our own identity, our security, our possessions, our very lives, and even our own families are not to be loved or pursued more than our love, commitment, and devotion to Jesus Christ. Faithfulness to Jesus accompanied by denial of self brings about the best, most complete, fulfilling, and peaceful life. And Jesus speaks here with very vivid language. He uses the imagery of the cross, which was going to be very familiar to his disciples because they would have seen many people carrying that Roman cross to their own crucifixion and death. And when one carried that Roman cross, that was an admission of guilt. They had done something wrong against the Roman government and the Roman government had every right to crucify and to kill them. And so Jesus is saying here, if you will take up your cross, you are living in obedience to me Submission to me, willing to give your life for me regardless of whatever else the world and those out there 
the religious, the government, your family, and all men, all of culture can do to you, but you are placing your ambitions above anything else, them and anything else. You're placing me first. Denial of self in order to pursue what Jesus has for us is where we find authentic life. It's where and when we are fulfilled. Our lives have purpose. We know it. But there's all, there seems to be a struggle. But there's not in Jesus Christ. Because when our lives in Jesus Christ, that's the peace that Jesus came. Not peace that just everybody gets along on the earth. Peace in here. The greatest peace that is needed. Peace with God. And then we can live in peace regardless of the chaos swirling around us. We can have a certain confidence that everything is going to be all right. Yeah, it does sound ironic. Sometimes it maybe even sounds bizarre. But life in Christ is the only life that brings joy in the midst of severe pain and agony, that brings hope in the midst of heartbreak, death, and loss, and that brings certainty in the midst of confusion. Real life is found in Jesus Christ, not in striving and struggling to make a name for yourself and accumulate a pile of goods that the world tells us will make us happy and content. The disciple worthy of Jesus loves him more than family. And that descriptive word worthy, it means deserving and valuable. You might remember it. Jesus used it in verse 11. He said, when you go and enter the village of the city, look for one who is worthy. Same word. The disciple who is worthy of Jesus, denies self, takes up his cross, and is willing to give up his physical life for the one who can save his soul. Jesus said to his disciples, chapter 9, verses 37 to 38, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. The disciple who is a worthy worker is one who responds to the call of Christ, submits to the commission of Jesus, and lives obediently to the coaching and instruction of Christ, preparing to go on mission for Him. The worthy worker is to prioritize his speech to confess Jesus publicly, knowing Jesus will do the same for them. The worthy worker is to prioritize his relationships, knowing that Jesus may divide his family, leaving him an outcast and severed from them. The worthy worker prioritizes his ambitions, to be identical to those of his teacher, his master, his savior, his Lord, that he is willing to die to self and make Jesus his first focus, priority, and passion. Heavenly Father, your son said some hard things, but your son did something very hard that only he could do, that is needed by every one of us in this room and watching online. And that's to die on the cross, to shed his blood so that sin can be forgiven, that our sin, by grace through faith, when we believe in him as your one and only son. And then, Lord... Then doing this stuff that Jesus said. Then being able to focus 
on our speech and our relationships and our ambitions. It actually isn't that hard. Remind us as often as we need it throughout this day and throughout this week all that you have done for us so that we would be willing and able to confess you before men. That we would love you more than we love the relationships that we have with people on this earth and that we would be found worthy of you, denying self and taking up our cross and following you. As we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.